particularly on the um, the agent of that that um, doer. There's some teaching sutras where the early sutras where the Buddha says um, the the effects of the karma um, of an individual ripen or come to fruition um, for the self that did them. He even uses the word uh, the self there. I think it's it's Atta or Atman that did them, but including with this teaching of no self. There's one early sutra that says that. And sometimes it's translated as they come back to fruition for the individual who, uh, who performed the action, whether in this life, next life, or future lives. But still, the teaching of no continuous independent self. So, this bring, bring up questions. I would understand that to be not some essential entity of self, but um, he's using the, the term kind of lightly there, I think, as the effects come back to fruition for the um, unique or individual um, continuum, sometimes it's called, the continuum of consciousness. And I think you have to be careful with those words. The continuum is not a continuous thread, but it's a series, a causal series of conscious moments. And so that's where it gets trickier in these after-death stories. The, the physical effects we can see, but what about the, um, the more subtle um, mental effects on consciousness, uh, on the causal, on the individual unique causal series of consciousness. You could say um, that's what a per conventionally that's what a person is in, in his life, right? We are, um, we, could, we could speak of ourselves as a causal series of body and mind experiences. That's a kind of definition for a, a conventional person. You see how it sounds like we are body and mind experiences, but we're we're more than just the present body and mind experience. Now, if it was just that, I'd have no maybe no continuity, no memory of yesterday or a moment ago. But there's a causal series. It means that this this um, present body and mind experience is arising dependent on the previous body and mind experience in this particular causal series. Not, you know, and the causal series are all interdependent and we affect each other. But they don't get that mixed up. We memory is a good example of we, how do we account for memory if we don't say there's a causal series. Ca the causal series is a nice way of speaking because just, this body and mind arises and when it ceases, dependent on that, body and mind experiences, a new body and mind set of experiences arise, dependent on this one. So that one's gone. There's no link between them, except interdependence. And interdependence is not exactly a connection, it's just a, when this arises, this arises, and then this ceases. Nagarjuna is the one who really looks at what's the relation between Cause, cause and effect like this. And is, if this one's gone before this one 
arises, and it, and it does. It has to cease before the next one arises. A seed has to cease before the sprout arises, but the sprout is dependent on the seed. But if that was truly ceased before this one arose, there's no connection between them. And yet, um, kind of mysterious cause and effect. If we start to examine the process of causality, there's no links between them, and yet there's what we call relationality, interdependence. So a causal series of body and mind experiences is a person in this life, and a death, the body has its continues in a causal series um, of burial or cremation and turning into earth or whatever, or smoke. And uh, but there was so much emphasis on mind in early Buddhism. What about the causal series of consciousness? Not a thread, but a causal series arising and ceasing moments of consciousness, and how they um, are they that consciousness is um, associated with karmic uh, effects. In a later Mahayana tradition, we have the storehouse consciousness that was that model was proposed for various reasons, but one of the main reasons I think for that model is to explain this strange thing of rebirth. So in the Mahayana, the yoga child teachings, it's, it's, the, it's the storehouse consciousness is what's reborn. But that's, that storehouse consciousness is nothing but a causal series. It's not an entity. It's not a self. Buddha even says, I, I hesitate to teach storehouse consciousness because people might misunderstand it for a, for a Atman or self. Sorry to belabor this idea, but if, if a consciousness who has had a bad life comes back and doesn't know that what's happening to them as a result of a previous life's bad deeds or good deeds, mm -hmm. then it doesn't really seem to be that, it doesn't really seem like there is karma. I mean, if there is no there's no continuous understanding of I really screwed up last time and now I'm a toad <laughs> or something. Well, that's the effect. I, I mean, it's yeah, but it, 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 there is no... We don't know why, but but um, especially, I think in, you know, in, in, the, in the Buddhist cultures, they would, they often would say, people, people understand this this teaching of karma, so they would say, if I'm having a bad life, it is actually um, dependent on that. Or whether we know why or not, this would be one teaching. But it's also not like, um, it's not like strict determinism, like that everything that happens to us in this life was due to past karma. Even the Buddha even taught that, to, so that we don't get too rigid about this. So there's, uh, because there's, like, like Tim was saying, there's all these other effects Karma is not the only kind of causality. There's also like, like a rock falling off a mountain and landing on our head 
is not um, a karmic thing. That's just like elements of nature um, interacting with our father. But the fact that we happen to be walking there under the rock at that time, <laughs> not necessarily that it's predetermined that the rock's going to fall, but that we are in that place, uh, whether that's good or bad, is uh, was due to previous intentions. So you can say that's that's karmic. But uh, it's a it's a hard teaching. I was I was going to bring a I realized that um, I recently wrote this article on trying to understand karma more myself. And rebirth is usually closely connected with karma teachings. And I found a newsletter where, where I'm living um, across the street. Because it gets sent to Austin's end someday. So I was going to bring it by. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll bring it and put it in here. Because it was pulling out these early sutras um, uh, about um, karma. And it mentions this one where the Buddha says, the effects come back to the doer, which is one of the harder ones to grapple with. Because it sounds so much like a continuous self. But, um, but as I said, I, I liked Tim's story of how there's some, there with the whirlpools, um, this whirlpool, even if we're talking in the mental realm, not the physical realm, this, men, this series of mental causality is going to play out um, in other, it's going to affect others' minds in the future, and, but maybe multiple ones. So it, it, it could be... Uh, even like now, right? like Dogen's mind is affecting our mind now. Right? So, uh, so that's a kind of like mind uh, causality that's not like this traditional story of rebirth. So I think there's all kinds of possibilities, but what we want to take into account is the karma throughout vast time, karma causality throughout space and time. And that story kind of does that, I think. And, uh, and Dogen is trying, in this, in this teaching, mind itself as Buddha, this is an early teaching of Dogen. This was written in 1237, so shortly after like the Genjo Kawan. You know, it's like in the first maybe five things that he wrote after. Um, out of like 95, and uh, so it's Dogen's understanding and teaching kind of evolves through his his lifetime too and uh, so this is he's really emphasizing this point in the early teachings um, so I, I also thought of this later teaching it's undated but it's I think it's generally considered to be later later in Dogen's life it sounds like it might even refute some of the things he's saying here but it's also about the rebirth issue. So we don't emphasize this in Zen, but just to throw out there, it's um, Dogen, our kind of Soto Zen um, party line uh, spokesperson. <laughs> this is his essay called uh, Mind of the Way, Shogogens or Doshin. This, this might be surprising. Dogen says, whether you're asleep or awake, think of the three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. He's really just emphasizing this devotion and constantly thinking, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. 
even when they're asleep. Chant the three treasures. I take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And chant these three treasures when you leave this life. As you die, keep chanting these three treasures. So when you die, chant them. And so what is the you he keeps talking about here? <laughs> I would just say may maybe it's like karmic consciousness. You know, that it's not it's not the big you, the all inclusive you of boundless Buddha nature. Maybe it could be this, but it sounds like the you that's that's leaving this life, this karmic stream, keep chanting. Take, chanting maybe means like just keep taking a refuge. But if you can remember these words, Buddha Dharma Sangha, even after you leave this life, try to. Before you enter the next life, Dogen says, there's a place called the intermediate realm, the Ampadabhava in Sanskrit. Better known in its in its Tibetan translation as Bardo. So it might be surprising. Dogen is actually talking about the Bardo. This Antarabhava or Bardo is um, is just standard Indian teaching. It's it's really um, kind of fleshed out in in Basubandhu's uh, Abhidharma Kosha. He talks about this forty nine days of Bardo, Antarabhava. So it's kind of standard Mahayana teaching. But Dogen's, Dogen's kind of picking up on that here. When you leave this life, before you enter the next life, there's a place <laughs> called the Intermediate Realm, Bardo. You stay there for seven days. You. <laughs> the causal series of, of consciousness. There's no more, it's not a causal series of body and mind anymore because the body is no longer there. It's a causal series of mind. Small mind, I, I would understand this. Con dualistic consciousness, actually, is the bardo. And sometimes I think Vasubandhu maybe tries to, um, this is for example, questions, can you have a disembodied consciousness? I think that I think he talks about it as a, a subtle, a subtle mind-made body in the bardo. Uh, a subtle what? Like mind, a mind-projected body. So not like a physical body with arms and legs, but some, um, just enough sense of bodiness to um, not a, not a material body, but enough to um, have not have a disembodied consciousness, which is going to be a big issue for Dogen later in that part, I say here. So Dogen says, you stay in this intermediate realm for seven days, and during this time, you should resolve to keep chanting the three treasures in Dogen's life. And if you have a mouth there, <laughs> but, you, but, you know, with your mind, um, you should resolve to keep chanting the three treasures without ceasing while you're there in the in the Antarabhava in Bardo. After seven days there, you die into another intermediate realm and remain there for no more than seven days. At this time, you can see and hear without hindrance 
like one with a celestial eye. These are kind of classic Indian Buddhist teachings of this intermediate one. Resolve to keep chanting Buddha Dharma Sangha without ceasing. I take refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. After passing through this intermediate realm, when you approach your parents to be conceived, resolve to maintain authentic wisdom. I think the official story is like there's these seven periods of seven days. So it adds up to 49 days. And so still, at Zen Center, San Francisco Zen Center, we, after maybe an important teacher, after 49 days after they die, we do another ceremony. I think many Buddhist traditions do that because that's Vasubandhu's teaching of um, kind of the maximum time in the bardo, in the intermediate realm before the next birth. So we're trying to help the intermediate being that has celestial eyes and ears that can hear our chanting to help them maintain authentic wisdom, as they've been saying. Because after they're born, then they maybe can't, then they get human ears or, or uh, slug ears. <laughs> they can't hear us. There's some other things. I think I heard that Uchiyama, when Uchiyama Roshi passed, his students did like a 49 day session. Yeah. I think I've heard Kodo Sawaki Roshi. Oh, um, yeah, 49 day. So that was, that was their ritual because that was his practice with Zazen. So instead of chanting, we're just going to sit for 49 days. So um, Dogen doesn't go through all the cycles, but he does talk about two periods of seven days. So as you um, resolve uh, to keep chanting without cease, after passing through this intermediate room when you approach your parents to be conceived, resolve to maintain authentic wisdom. Keep chanting the three refuges in your mother's womb. Do not neglect chanting while you're being born. It might be kind of distracting, but he says, try. Resolve to take refuge in the three treasures through the six senses. So maybe that's um, kind of a clue to like, we're not necessarily chanting with our mouth, but it's like, whenever, maybe it's like at birth when the six senses come, let all our seeing and hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching be taking a refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Thus keep chanting. I take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Birth after birth, world after world, until you reach enlightenment, the fruit of Buddhahood. This is how all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are practiced. So it could be that he's sort of, it's sort of just encouragement to never <laughs> cease taking refuge. Whether he means it literally, or if he's just kind of using the story. Hyperbole. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of part of the tradition. Because so. he doesn't talk about it much. Uh, it's interesting. That, that, um, and if you could be that aware, then you would already be enlightened, it would seem. It would seem, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But maybe um, the complete enlightenment is that. Uh, is so awesome and vast that they um, that maybe we can still like I take refuge in Buddha and I'm still aware of taking refuge in Buddha, but there's still enough karmic momentum that birth is happening here in this 
like I'm not, I'm not sure if I've chosen these parents, but um, um, but I'm still taking refuge in Buddha. <laughs> but we're definitely cooking along here. I think if we can remember this. So, um, uh, before we go back to that, the essay at hand, there's a very similar discussion to this section about Hui Zhong and um, Seneca in Shogun's Bendo Wa, um, The Endeavor of the Way, which is, we say it's like Do the first essay that Dogen ever wrote. So it's before Sokushin's Eibutsu by a few years, and very important. Teaching of Dogen for um, his his lineage. It's get sometimes they say Genjo Koan Nishiari Bokusan, the uh, his teacher who was the teacher of one of Suzuki Roshi's teachers, Kishizawa Biyam, important um, uh, Soto Zen scholar practitioner in the 1800s. Did a lot of commentary on Shobo Genzo. He says that um, the three most important Shobo Genzo chapters that kind of like summarize all of Dogen's teachings is Bendoa, it's on the endeavor of the way, which includes Jiji Uzamai, or self fulfilling samadhi teaching, and uh, Genjo Koan, which many people very important short essay, and Busho, or Buddha Nature, which is the longest essay in all of Shibuya. So that's what Nishiara Bokusan felt like. Those really uh, give you the full picture of Dogen. And they're all in the early part of his life, interestingly. So this one, Bendo, uh, uh, has this series of questions and answers. Like half the essays is a bunch of hypothetical questions. I think it's Dogen is writing the questions and then answering them. It's a style of writing like that. But they never became from people he talked to. So I think it's a lot of great teaching in, these, in this Q&A part of Ben Noir. So question number 10 is about this, this issue of this essay. The question is, someone says, one Zen master said, quote, do not grieve over birth and death. There is an immediate way to be free from birth and death, namely to know the principle that the nature of mind is permanent. Sounds familiar. It means that because this body is already in birth, it's brought to death, but the mind nature will not perish you should recognize that you have in your body the mind nature, which is not affected by birth and death. This is inherent nature. The body is a temporary form. It dies here and is born there and is not fixed. The mind is permanent and does not change through past, future, and present. So this is this questioner saying, some, some Zen teacher said this. And he goes on for a while, it's kind of long, so. The question continues in the same vein. 
It even says something like, when your body ends, you enter the ocean of true nature. And when you flow into that ocean, you attain one virtue of, of all the Buddhas. So, then this questioner says, does such a statement as this accord with the path of all Buddhas and ancestors? Uh-oh. <laughs> Dogen's answer is, the view you have mentioned is not at all the Buddhist view, <laughs> but rather the view of the heretic Seneca. <laughs> Very similar in this essay, too, but there's some points in here that aren't in the, in the other one that are nice. Seneca said, there's a soul, it's kind of rage, spiritual intelligence, it's in one's body, and this soul on encountering conditions recognizes good and bad, right and wrong, to discern aching and itching, and to know pain, pain and pleasure is the soul's capacity. Basically, almost identical. However, when the body is destroyed, the soul comes out and is born into another world. So it appears to be dead here, but since there's birth in another place, this spiritual intelligence is permanent without dying. That's the Dogen's that's the real Seneca Dogen says. Which keep in mind that it sounds kind of similar to the thing we just heard about going to you go through the intermediate state and so on. I mean these are like two different periods of Dogen's life. Kind of contradiction sometimes. But maybe maybe no contradiction. I think that Again, I think the issue is here is that this spiritual intelligence is something in the body that comes out of the body and is born into another. So then Dogen says, to follow this view of Seneca and regard it as the Buddhist teaching is more foolish than grasping a tile or pebble and regarding it as gold. Such shameful ignorance cannot be compared to anything <laughs> National teacher Hui Gong <laughs> criticized this deeply. To take up the wrong view that mind is permanent and forms perish, while regarding this as equal to the inconceivable teaching of all Buddhas, or to create the causes of birth and death while wishing to be apart from birth and death, is this not foolish? It's most pitiable. Just understand it as the wrong view of heretics. Don't listen to it. <laughs> Token sometimes get in, gets into this kind of fire and brimstone. <laughs> Rats. It's so passionate. And I appreciate it. You know, sometimes it's like he gets a little get too critical of particular people, but I think, I feel like his passion, like, we really have to clarify right view here right view in the Mahayana and right view in the Zen teachings, which may be a little different than the early versions of right view. I think it's valid to say that the Mahayana right view is slightly different than the, than the foundational teachings right view. At least it's a different emphasis. Maybe not contradictory, but different emphasis. Yes? I just have to ask. Um, you know, coming from a Christian background, right? There seems to be so much parallelism going on here. Mm. And I mean, even even reading 
some of Christ's early writings that he wrote, you know, the Gospel according to Thomas, mm-hmm. sounds very Buddhist in uh-huh. sections. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just my brain putting the pattern on mm-hmm. the words, but I mean, we've got this, we've got this Holy Trinity, and we've got this Purgatory, and I mean, there's like so many things mm-hmm. here that like seem like, was there any cultural overlap? I mean. Surely there was at, yeah. at this point, right? Or, yeah, I, mean, and I don't know the details about exactly. There might be some books on people trying to explore this, but there are these different areas of the world that are not so far apart geographically. And the Silk Road is, uh, by that time, there was lots of trade of ideas traveling across Asia. But Seneca was contemporary with Buddha. Buddha, right? yeah. yeah. So, that so that's be- long before Christ. Um, well, 500 years before. And, uh, but I, it seems to me um, that there's so much um, similarity that, um, that there was probably some cross-fertilization in maybe both directions. It seems like a lot of that Christian metaphysics comes out of that whole idea of the Ottoman. But, yeah, I mean, the soul. Yeah, and well, and the... Holy Spirit. Yeah. Could be something like that. Of course, you know, yeah. a Christian would say it comes from God, so it, you don't want to credit the Indians. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, I don't know. Well, also, I think it's natural, like, for humans that are contemplating what is this life and what does all this mean and where do people go when they die? These are almost like natural things to start questioning, especially mm-hmm. if we're not, don't have just the materialist view of, wow, well, you die, that's the end, that's nothing else. If there's some spiritual feeling and there's um, what happens because even think like Native Americans even have ideas of like there's some spirit after death you know like the Esalen tribe near Tassajara says that uh, all the ancestors are born as owls because yeah. they live in the Ventana wilderness when you hear owls that's that's, that's like family ancestors so I think it's almost universal that there's some afterlife but when you say fire and brimstone, Dogen is calling heretical the, the opposite view of what the West, you know, the West would say, if someone said that you don't have a soul, mm-hmm. that would be the heretical view in the West. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Um, it's, it's interesting that, like, he's, he's fire and brimstoning the other way. Yeah, 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 it's true. Actually, see, this was from, like, from another class on the Bendo line, these notes, and and I see, I, I looked up soul in the, um, in the dictionary, and it, I think it's a huge topic. But, but one dictionary definition says, the immaterial essence, animating principle, or actuating cause of an individual life. Which sounds like, like um, similar to a personal Atman. Uh, maybe a little different than a universal offline. We're talking about these things too. Yeah. So, um, so then Dogen goes on. After he's after he says, "It's a heretical view." Then he says, "I cannot refrain from being sympathetic. Let me rescue you from your wrong view." <laughs> 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 You should know. So this is, I think, is, is a unique point here that's that's a, that's not brought out in mind itself as Buddha. It's an interesting one. He says, um, 
You should know that in Buddha Dharma, it's always being said that body and mind are non-separate. Nature and characteristics are not two. Literally in the, in the Japanese it says, uh, body and mind are ichimyo, which means one suchness. Body and mind are one suchness. I think it's better than not, and more literal than not separate. Uh, and uh, I don't know where that's taught so much, in, but he says it's, a, it's always being said <laughs> that body and mind are one suchness. I can't think of this like secret place where it's in. And nature and characteristics are not two, or non-dual. Um, nature and characteristics here, uh, I understand, is the um, Buddha nature, like the true um, ultimate nature, and characteristics are like the particular forms, the particular manifestations. Nature and characteristics, so the ultimate and the conventional, the vastness, and the, the, the vast oneness and the multiplicity are not two. That one we hear quite a lot. So the form itself is emptiness. It's like that. But body and mind, like, one suchness is, he seems it's so, it's so common, but I don't know. I've heard that so much. But this was known, both in India and China. There's no room for mistake. In fact, the, so this is a, this is a little hard. In fact, the teaching about permanence, the true Dharma teaching about permanence, says that all things are permanent without dividing body and mind. And let's say, what? The teaching of permanence? I think it's kind of what we've been talking about. It. The, the, the um, Parinirvana Sutra says the eternal or the permanent. Like we chanted this morning, Enmeju Gu Kanonjo. Jo Raku Ga Jo. I think that's referring to this part of the Jo Raku Ga Jo. Jo is like the um, eternal, permanent. Mujo is impermanence. So Jo, you could say permanent. Raku is pleasure, bliss. Ga is self. And Jo is, uh, the other Jo is pure. So, uh, that, that chant, Joe Rakugajo, is, uh, is, I think, celebrating these, these radical qualities of Buddha nature. And uh, self, self, the chant. So, um, so the teaching of permanence is that everything is permanent, not separating body and mind. So there is this teaching in Mahayana, Buddha nature teachings. But even in the Heart Sutra, uh, there's that line, all dharmas are marked by emptiness. They neither arise nor cease. They neither defiled nor pure. So they neither arise nor cease, we might say. I thought all dharmas were impermanent. Impermanent means they arise and cease. But actually, from the perspective of emptiness, they don't arise and cease. It's a little, um, I think, an important part of the heart sutra there. Just can chant through kind of quickly. All dharmas are have the have the qualities of emptiness. 
then all, all phenomena don't arise and cease. They're not impermanent. It's not saying in that case that they are permanent, but um, it's kind of going in that direction, right? From the perspective of emptiness, nothing happens, nothing changes. And eternally, nothing ever happens. Right? From this ultimate perspective. From the conventional perspective, everything's happening, meaning it's arising and ceasing. Impermanence is a conventional teaching. Permanence is a kind of ultimate teaching from a kind of Buddha nature perspective. Follow? We often don't bring up that teaching. Permanence, but here, Dogen's saying, The, um, the teaching about permanence says that all things are permanent without dividing body and mind. The teaching about cessation or impermanence says that all things cease without separating the true nature and the characteristics. So if we're talking from the Buddha nature perspective, everything is permanent. That's why I'm saying that, like the cup is Buddha nature, the cup is myself. Myself is unchanging, um, eternal. So the cup, in its true nature, is actually eternal, unchanging. Its true nature is its unchanging Buddha nature. But of course, the appearance of it um, is constantly changing. From the perspective of impermanence, everything is impermanent, the cup and all of us. From the perspective of permanence, uh, nothing ever changes. And it's Dogen's, I think, in his non-dual way, is trying to say, across the board, let's not say that this my nature is permanent, that the body's impermanent. That's, that's too dualistic for him. Even though maybe it helps to talk about it that way, like we have been a little bit. I think it's, this is a, a subtle point he's making. It's from this ultimate perspective, everything is unchanging from the conventional perspective. Everything is changing. Can't even find it unchanging my nature. That's from this perspective of the conventional impermanence. So, uh, how can you say that the body perishes but mind is permanent? Is it not against the authentic principle? Not only that you should understand that birth and death is itself nirvana. Nirvana is not explained outside of birth and death. So, Dogen has another essay called Birth and Death. It's another way of, what is the Chinese way of translating samsara, birth and death. And so, usually those are opposites. Right? So, samsara, nirvana means is the cessation of birth and death in kind of early Buddhism kind of the definition of nirvana, the complete um, eternal freedom from suffering is the end of all birth and death. No more rebirth. In early Buddhism, they're like opposites. But in the Mahayana, non-dual teachings, birth and death is itself nirvana. In the way we've been talking about, like this cup is being born and dying, but its actual true nature is nirvanic. Um, it's, it's unborn, its nature is unborn. And we, all of us, are 
as bodies and minds we appear to be going through birth and death, but our true um, nature is nirvana. Nirvana is similar to Buddha nature. The Nirvana Sutra equates these terms. Complete Nirvana is an inward name for Buddha nature. And, and it's beyond all conception. It's, uh, it's uh, the unborn, undying Nirvana. But the Mahayana, they're not, they can't, we can't separate these. We can talk about them from these two different points of view, but actually the true nature of birth and death is Nirvana. Therefore, we can make statements like, birth and death is itself nirvana. Sounds weird, but right? we, from, the, from our discussion so far, we can start to um, open to how they can make these outrageous statements in the Mahayana. Birth and death is itself nirvana. Nirvana is not explained outside of birth and death. Even if you understand that mind is permanent apart from the body, and mistakenly assume that Buddha's wisdom is separate from birth and death, this mind of understanding or recognizing still arises and perishes and is not permanent. Is it not ephemeral? That's a nice point. In other words, the, uh, like you might have a glimpse of nirvana, I have a glimpse of like, really is nothing other than awareness. But then that, that's like a kind of a, mo a momentary glimpse that is impermanent. <laughs> you should know that the teaching that body and mind are one suchness is always being explained in Buddha Dharma. Then how can mind alone leave the body and not cease when the body ceases? If body and mind are non-separate sometimes, and not non-separate some other times, the Buddhist teaching will be false. Again, to think that birth and death has to be rejected is the mistake of rejecting Buddha Dharma. This is the non-dual teaching. Nothing needs to be rejected. It just needs to be understood. You must refrain from this. You should know that the so-called Dharma gate of the whole reality of mind and nature in Buddha Dharma includes the entire phenomenal world of all things without dividing true nature from characteristics of birth from death. Nothing, not even Bodhi or Nirvana is outside of mind nature. All things and all phenomena are just one mind. Nothing is excluded or unrelated. It's taught that all Dharma gates are equally one mind and there's no differentiation. This is how Buddhists understand mind nature. How can you differentiate this into body and mind and divide birth and death in nirvana? You are already the Buddha's child. Do not listen to the tongues of madmen who quote heretical views. So, uh, you can, you know, if you're interested, read, read that um, on your own in the question 10 in the Ben Noir. But I think it's particularly, he's emphasizing um, not separating body and mind 
which in other places, teachings do tend to, tend to separate them. And he's still saying all things are one mind, but he's not, I think he's just trying to get away from this some sort of essence that leaves the body and enters another body. I guess it's main point. So, um, here's the sutra that, that uh, about these questions that are asked that the Buddha didn't like to answer. This is um, the middle-length discourses, Sutra 72, to Vacha Gota. And um, interestingly, I have to note that um, in Nagarjuna's um, treatise on Prashnaparamita, he says uh, that Vacha Gota and Vatsugotra in Sanskrit and uh, Shrenika are the same person. They have two different names for the same person. It's very interesting. There's so much going on here. Uh, and I think it has to do with this sutra that in the, in the Pali text is called the Agi Vatsugotra Sutra, the, the Sutra to Vatsugotra. So um, to me, it's fascinating that this is maybe it is Seneca. <laughs> with another name. There's that teaching. So, um, so uh, the Buddha was residing at, in the Jetta Grove, and uh, the wanderer, Vajagota, in parentheses, Seneca, <laughs> went to the Blessed One, and uh, the rival exchanged greetings, and uh, then he asked, um, how is it? Does Master Gotama hold the view? The cosmos is eternal. Only this is true. Anything else is worthless. And the Buddha says no. So he goes through various questions. But one of them is, does Master Gotama hold the view? The soul and the body are the same. And here we, we have the Pali. So the soul in this case is... Uh, Jiva, which is um, means something like a life force, and sometimes in um, in in some of the Brahmanical teachings, Jiva and uh, Bhagavan are equated, so it's very similar, but maybe slightly different. Now, in the Abhidharma teachings of these seventy-five elements in, of experience in Buddhist teaching, Jiva is one of them. <laughs> Adlan would never be put on a list, but uh, like the life principle, life force. Here it says the soul and the body. So, Matyagota asks, does Master Gotama hold the view the soul and the body are the same? And this is the truth? And the Buddha says, no, they don't. And then he, said, he says, uh, does Master Gautama hold the view then that the soul is one thing and the body another? Only this is true? And the Buddha says, no, I don't know that. <laughs> and he goes, and this is the one where he says, does Master Gautama hold the view after death at the Tagada exists? And only this is true? And the Buddha says, no. After death at the Tagada does not exist? The Buddha says, no. <laughs> and this one, this one, the Vatagota is really trying to get to the bottom of it. So he says, well, do you hold the view after death that the Tagata both exists and does not exist? 
And uh, Rick says, no. <laughs> well, how about after death, Atatagata neither exists nor does not exist? Buddha says, no. <laughs> and uh, then how is it, Master Gautama, that um, you say no to all of my questions? And Buddha says, not to go to the position that the body is, body and mind are the same, or that, or that the soul and the body are the same, or the soul is one thing and the body another. That is, positions are a thicket of views, of like a bramble thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a better of views. It's accompanied by suffering, distress, despair, and fever, and does not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, to calm, direct, knowing, full awakening, nirvana. So, in this sutra, he's saying um, all of these um, views that you talk about, this or that, um, it's just holding a conceptual view. So then he goes on and on. Pachikosa says, well, then does Master Gotama have any position at all? <laughs> a position, Vacha, is something that the Atatagata has done away with. <laughs> what Atatagata sees is this. Such is form, such is its origin, such is its cessation. Such is feeling, such is its origin, such is cessation. Such a perception, such is their origin, such is their cessation, and so on. Such is dualistic consciousness, such is its origin, such is its cessation. It's a beautiful sutra. I don't have any position or views, but I do observe what's happening in direct experience. And I observe that that all these conditioned phenomena called five skandhas all arise and cease. It's kind of like a... without positing anything. And that's sort of the style, generally, of Buddhism. I see that these things arise and cease, and I don't need to posit anything else. Later, Mahayana tradition is um, start positing after a lot of people um, got sick from milk medicine, <laughs> later the Buddha says, no, some people, uh, since they're cured from that sickness, some people um, might be able to uh, imbibe some milk medicine <laughs> called Buddha nature. Was, I'm sorry, what was the name of that sutra? The, the it's um, the Agi Vajagota Sutta. Um, middle length discourses is 72. Two, it's two vacha gota on fire. Maybe they talk about it. Actually, I think the reason it's about agi, agni, fire, is um, the Buddha's talking about when a fire goes out, um, when the fuel is used up in a fire and the fire goes out, where does it go? That's kind of like the Tagada, when, they're, when they're, no, they're no longer grasping any fuel, 
and they go out. <laughs> They're thus gone. The ta ta gata is the thus gone one. Where do they go? Where is Taoism during Dogen's life? So when, when um, Buddhism and Chan came to China, Taoism was prominent in the culture and influenced Buddha Dharma quite a bit. Because Indian culture and Chinese culture are so different. So they, Buddhism used a lot of um, Taoist ideas and terms, like the way, attaining the way, the Tao. They don't have that word in India. So, uh, and like the concept of the Ichinyo that you mentioned? Yeah. But it sounds like Buddha was talking about that in some of these sutras, that two being one and the body and mind being this one, kind of yeah. not really two, not really mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like I mean, Dogen said it's a prominent teaching in India and China. But I, I haven't come across myself sutras that I can remember where it specifically talks about that point. Um, body and mind are definitely interdependent in many sutras. Like the five skandhas are kind of, they're all interdependent, an interdependent relationship between body and mind in the five skandhas. But um, that they're one suchness maybe is more Mahayana idea. I wouldn't be surprised. The, like the Mahayana starts where? I mean, what is, like, is that when it gets to China that it becomes that? Or Even before, that? in India, there was Mahayana, like this Parinirvana Sutra, like, like around the time of Christ, like around zero in the common era, um, the Mahayana teaching started. It's 500 years after Buddha's historical birth. Prajnaparamita was the first Mahayana teaching to emphasize an emptiness and all, all dharmas neither arrive nor cease. You don't hear that kind of thing so much in the early teachings. And then, um, so first it was emptiness, um, deconstructing everything completely. And uh, there is, at the heart sutra, there isn't anything. That's radical teaching. Early, pretty, this early Mahayana, like, like around the year zero, and then um, a couple hundred years after that, you get these more positive sounding teachings on Tathagatagarbha and Buddha nature, which actually came before um, Asanga and Vasubandhu, and the so-called mind-only teachings came in like 300s, 400s. So yeah, the teaching kept evolving, getting more and more um, subtle and awesome and, uh, and vast and, and leaving no no uh, stones unturned. <laughs> so 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 all this talk about you know and I think earlier like yesterday I, some of the way I'm talking was seemed like it was kind of separating body and mind like bodies and appearance. Um, it comes and goes, and the mind nature is an unchanging um, uh, reality. So maybe that was a little dualistic talk. From Dogen's point of view, he said, maybe that's a good way to start introducing the topic to see the two different sides. But then we can bring them back together 
it's even more subtle, I think. And that's the realm of say that everything that appears within the awareness that seems to be coming and going, its true nature is unchanging. From the perspective of permanence, Dogen says, everything is permanent or unchanging. Without separating body and mind. Because all appearances are awareness. There's no appearances other than the awareness of them. They're, they're not, that's why this word manifestation works very nicely to, uh, to uh, speak of this non-duality. Because if all appearances are manifestations of the unchanging um, reality, then their nature is unchanging reality. They're just manifestations. They're changing manifestations of an unchanging reality. But truly, nothing is changing. In emptiness, all, all things neither arise nor cease. But if we want to go back to the conventional, m more common teaching, all things are impermanent. There's nothing we can find that doesn't isn't constantly changing and impermanent. From that perspective, everything is impermanent. Can you follow that? That was easier, the impermanent part, right? And we've heard that one. The fact that everything is permanent is a tricky teaching. Maybe permanent is not even exactly the right word, because permanent stuff almost naturally implies something that's permanent. To call it, to use a negative term like unchanging, I think is better. Unchanging, there's an unchanging space. Even if we call it physical, physical space, we say it doesn't, like, a, like the balanced vacuum of space, we say it doesn't actually change. But to even call space permanent, it starts to solidify, it starts to gel into something. The way we use these words. But unchanging space doesn't imply something there. Eternal, which also means like unchanging, but the flavor of that word can, can uh, we can start to grasp something. So, um, Along these lines, Nan Chuan was a disciple of Matsu. Remember, Matsu is the one who said his very mind is Buddha. Nan Chuan is the one that um, one time killed a cat and people were squabbling. You may have heard this end story about that. Uh, so, Nan Chuan once said, that old worthy Matsu, my teacher, Matsu, used to say that mind itself is Buddha. Even though the late ancestor said that mind is Buddha, that was just a statement suited for a particular time. That kind of speech is like an empty fist full of yellow leaves, which are used to stop children's crying. Hmm. And the empty fist. Yeah, empty fist. Full of, and the idea here is that, like, I guess it was a thing in China that, like, the, the kids like, I want some gold money, 
some gold um, mommy uh, oh here's some some yellow leaves thank you <laughs> so happy now so um, I got some gold but it's not real gold right so that kind of speech this mind is Buddha it's like an empty fistful of yellow leaves which I use to stop children's crying Nowadays, there's many people who say that mind becomes Buddha and wisdom is the way. They also consider that all seeing, hearing, feeling, and knowing is the way. This is similar to these discussions. Isn't that like, isn't that being like Yajnadatta? This is, this is a story from the Sharangama Sutra. Yajnadatta who saw his head after seeing his reflection in the mirror and uh, so maybe we could take this metaphor as like, he saw his reflection in the mirror, but then um, then the mirror disappeared. He said, where's my head? I, I want to <laughs> find my head. And so maybe we could say trying, in this case, maybe we could see it as trying, we, see some, we hear some reflection about true mind, which are like these teachings. Mind itself is Buddha, but then we're trying to grasp mind itself. It's sort of like, seeing his reflection and then trying to find his actual head. Even if he could find something that way, that would still not be his original head. Because you can't find this Buddha nature. And then Nanfan goes on, if one says that mind itself is Buddha, that's like a rabbit or a horse with horns. And there's all the images rabbit horns don't exist, right? Rabbits don't have horns. So mind itself is Buddha is like a rabbit with horns, but if one says not mine, not Buddha, that's like a cow or a goat without horns. <laughs> Cows or goats have horns. You see, those are two, we can hear either one of those statements in a kind of extreme way, like adding too much extra horns or not having enough horns. If it's your mind, then what need is there of a Buddha? Why do you need to say mind itself is Buddha? This mind, this mind, ordinary mind. So that's uh, along those lines too. Now, one last piece about that in line with this that um, before we go on, this is the Book of Serenity. This collection of koans in um, the commentary on case 21. which illustrates what we've been talking about very nicely, I think. The, the story is about um, Yunyan and Dao and uh, I can't quite remember. I think it's Yunyan is maybe sweeping the ground with a broom, and Dao says, um, too busy. And Union says, you should know there's one who's not busy. You know this story? So um, in terms of our discussion, we could say, too busy is like the world of activity and arising and ceasing, coming and going, and birth and death. Like, um, he's using these events to kind of metaphorically talk about this. Looks like there's too much activity going on there. And the one, the one sweeping says, um, you should know there's one who's not busy. There's one who's not busy. It's like 
Buddha mentioned, like space, right? It's not busy. <laughs> it never does anything. And then uh, the other one says, well, then you're saying that there's two moons, like two truths, two realities, the busy one and the not busy one. And uh, he holds the one sweeping, holds up the broom and says, which moon is this? Which truth is this? So this is all about this non-duality between the busy and the not busy. It's not that there's some transcendent not busy one. It's separate from the busy one, and and for our discussion, we could we could take this to be like the one who's not busy is is the nature of mind, the, the vastness, and the busy one is like the body arising and ceasing, being born and dying within it. So it's one way to hear this this commentary in the Book of Serenity on this story says <coughs> Union and Dawu feared that people would set up a dharma body, like an inconceivable, boundless dharmakaya, apart from the physical body. This is, yeah, this is related to our discussions, right? Um, and then the commentator quotes, guess who? National teacher Hui Zhang, <laughs> who says, here we say, that body and mind are one suchness. So maybe that's what Guz Dogen was saying. We hear, we have this teaching, body and mind are one suchness. And here it is in Chinese Zen, early Chinese Zen. Here we say body and mind are one suchness. There's nothing outside of mind. Therefore, it's completely unborn and undying. Body and mind are one suchness, and both the body and mind are completely unborn and undying. That's what we say, Wei Zhang says. Um, you in the South, remember those people in the South, they talk it like Shranika. You in the South say that body is impermanent while the spiritual nature is permanent. So there in the South, it's half born, half dying, and it's half unborn, half undying. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a great commentary on this, on this section of Dogen. That's the problem of separating body and mind. See, there is an unborn, undying, but the body is... is um, but that's only half the story, unborn and undying. It's half ultimate truth, and it's half conventional self of a body being born and dying. But we up here in the North, in our non-dual reality, say that body and mind are one suchness. It's all unborn and undying. So we might say, well, that sounds like kind of one-sided. What about what we call birth and death? So interestingly, Kuei-Dong is really an ultimate kind of guy. Huijong another time said um, a monk came to Huijong and said yeah, came to Huijong and said um, aside from mind itself is Buddha are there any other practices that can be undertaken you might wonder this this point is a shame because all we're hearing about is mind itself is Buddha you know? and maybe Huijong talked about that a lot too 
even though he was make sure we understood it. But aside from mind itself as Buddha, are there any other practices that can be undertaken? And the national teacher said, all the ancient sages possessed the two collections of merit and wisdom. Like the merit that comes from generosity and um, virtue and patience and so on. And the wisdom that understands that all of that is is unchanging suchness. Classic Mahayana. fulfillment of complete merit and complete wisdom is what makes a Buddha. So all the ancient sages possess these two collections of virtue, merit, merit and wisdom. But does this allow them to dispense with cause and effect? That's his answer. Aside from mind itself as Buddha, are there any other practices? All the sages, instead of going to this kind of ultimate teaching, national teachers said all the sages were, were concerned with merit and generosity and developing their, um, their compassionate expression as well as wisdom. And does this allow them to dispense with taking care of cause and effect? So, and he even says, the answer I've just given you cannot be exhausted even in an eon. <laughs> really? What's so great about that? <laughs> but uh, I think he's saying that um, apart from realizing mind itself is Buddha, let's be really careful with cause and effect and take care of conventional appearances and be kind to each other and careful and watch how the, uh, this display of um, karmic causality plays out. There are other practices besides mind and spirit. Like everything we do, how we serve or yoki and offer incense and um, by the way, with the email here, I noticed that the um, at morning service, maybe you usually don't do such a long morning service. So about halfway through the service, the charcoal is kaput. <laughs> so you know what sense. Maybe it could be a bit later, something like that. So there's things like this besides mind itself as Buddha. <laughs> Not really other than that. You know, Dogen's being so careful about um, not falling into the view of Shrenaka and um, some sort of essence that comes and goes from the body and birth and death. Uh, but Keizan Zenyi, a few generations after Dogen, so considered co-founder of Soto Zen, I love Keizan teaching the transmission of light. Um, partly because Keizan was really like a Buddha nature guy. That was like his main thing. And so a lot of his teachings in the Transmission of Light record sound um, much more substantial. So I find it, Dogen and Kazan make a nice pair. 
But sometimes when I'm reading Kazan, I think, if Dogen was alive when Kazan was teaching this, what would Dogen say? Kazan's constantly praising Dogen as the kind of the ancestor just before him that founded this school in Japan. But Kazan's got a little different style. And I think it's beautiful that Dharma can be expressed in all these different ways. But just to, as an example, before we go on, here's, here's a short piece from Kazan's Transmission of Light. Um, it sounds like Dogen might not like this. See what you think. Kazan says, Now, fundamentally, practicing Zen and learning the way is for the sake of reaching the fundamental and clarifying the nature of mind. If you do not reach the fundamental, which would maybe be like the origin or the essence, you are born and die in vain, deluded about self and others. As for the so-called intrinsic nature, you people die and die and are born again and again, even though face after face and body after body is different, never for a moment are you lacking in completely clear knowing. Once, when he talks a little more, he says, once you're able to clarify this realm, even though you change forms and move from life to life, how can that hinder the self or alter mind? Maybe okay. I don't mind it, but um, Dogen might say, uh, whoa, it sounds like it's separating the impermanent body and the, and the intrinsic nature of the capital S, self. Dogen uses the word self in a positive way quite a bit, but Kazan really, really gets into it. <laughs> so, uh, let's go back to, uh, to this so, so Dogen, this is on page two, the second paragraph. Dogen says, Wei Zhong, a senior disciple of Huayang, Bola Buddha Saoji, the sixth ancestor, was a great teacher of humans and devas, celestial beings. Clarify his essential teaching and make it a standard for study. And I just discovered that there's um there's a section missing from this translation that for some reason Kastanashi didn't translate. I don't know if they just missed it or if they wanted to leave it out. There's a whole paragraph in other translations and in the Japanese version. And the gist of it, of that paragraph, is just um, praising Huijong. <laughs> don't mean to say how great Huijong is. And um, so maybe they felt it was redundant. But in that, in that section, it does interestingly say um, that even Linji and Dushan cannot compare to Huijong. I, I don't know what, what's going on there exactly, but um, no, there's no further comments. But um, I thought that maybe uh, Dogen is just referring to, um, I don't know so much about Shan's teachings, but Lin Ji is one who didn't shy away from talking about the true person of no position moves in and out through the portals of your face. And um, 
and uh, Renji says like, I love Renji's teachings myself. There's like a, there's a bright essence that all beings share. In the eyes we call it seeing, in the ears we call it hearing, in the feet we call it walking. Talking about Buddha nature. So, um, I find this teaching is very helpful, but uh, in Dogen, at, the, at least at this point in Dogen's life, there might be certain teachings like that of Linji that, that Dogen would say, that sounds a little like some mysterious metaphysical something. It sounds a little soul-like. So uh, it's all how we understand it. Anyway, this translation continues. Mind itself is Buddha, which has been maintained by Buddha ancestors. Is not something those outside the way or practitioners of the two lesser vehicles can even dream of. Two lesser vehicles, and Shravakas and Pratika Buddhas are like the pre Mahayana individual liberation practitioners. They get, they get a bad rap from the Mahayana. Only Buddha ancestors, together with Buddha ancestors, have been actualizing and penetrating. Mind itself is Buddha. So this is a reference to the uh, Lotus Sutra. Dogen likes this line in the Lotus Sutra. Only a Buddha together with a Buddha can thoroughly understand the true marks of reality. And so then Dogen wrote a whole essay called Only a Buddha and a Buddha. And, uh, emphasizing that it's just this together thing that happens, teacher and disciple, and in conversation, um, together, a clear mind and a clear mind, together bring out the, the true dharma. It's a nice teaching. So it's one of those little like references Dogen throws in there. Only Buddha ancestors, together with Buddha ancestors, have been actualizing and penetrating mind itself as Buddha. Thus, it has been heard, practiced, and realized. This is not exactly the same as these three types of wisdom I mentioned earlier, but it sounds somewhat similar. Like first, we hear the teaching, and then we practice the teaching, and then we realize or verify the teaching. The only Buddha ancestors together with Buddha ancestors, you say that's only two clear minds? Yeah. Uh, um, in other words, if you just uh, it's it to yourself, it's... So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's implying when Dogen... In the Lotus Sutra, there's, it's just this one phrase that I think Lotus Sutra people didn't pay much attention to, but Dogen picked up on that phrase and wrote this whole essay about it. And his um, point is that um, I think it's about, it's, it's emphasizing um, lineage and transmission and that it's not just one person like, I got it. It's like together, a Buddha. To, the sutra actually says a Buddha together with a Buddha, but Dogen adds an ancestor which is the Zen lineage ancestors. Only Buddha. Buddha ancestors together with Buddha ancestors. It kind of Zenifies it. Yeah, but it's 
it's bigger than any one person's grasp on reality. And, uh, which is being demonstrated in this essay because Dogen himself is quoting, and constantly quoting all these other Buddhas and ancestors. Kind of, and then playing with them teachings. Trying not to go outside them too much. Thus, it has been her practice and realized. Thus, Buddha's um, 100 blades of grass have been taken out. They've been made to disappear. So this is a... Um, this part, you don't get it in this translation, but in the, in the Japanese, what Dogen's doing here is he's taking the, the, the title of the essay, Soku Shinze Butsu, four characters, and he's writing a paragraph on each character. So, um, sorry, I circled how it is, and each paragraph begins with the character, so in the Japanese originally, you can see how it's done like that. So the first one is on Buddha, the character Butsu. The next one is on Soku, the paragraph that begins, this is the fundamental point. This is Soku. So you can, if you have Pencil and you want to get these to say Buddha and Buddha's hundred blades, that's Butsu. Um, this in the next paragraph is Soku. One line down where it says itself, that itself is Zay. Mind itself is Buddha. And then you can see a little bit further to the right, itself is in italics. So um, referring to the title. And then, um, and then, in that same line, to further to the right, mind is a wall. That's the mind. So, if I was translating this, I think I would try. To, I would write it out like that, and it would, it would um, show the Dogen's kind of playing with the words like this. The four characters on the front. Yes. Did yeah. they read back to the front? Did they read right to left? He doesn't do them in order. In this case. Oh. Yeah. It's actually the order, he chooses the four, but it's one, it goes Butsu, Soku, Zei, Shin. And so Butsu is on the far left? Um, oh, in the, on the title, yeah, Butsu's, uh, no, no, it's on the right. And that turned out. Soku, Shin is like, looks a little bit like a, like a heart with ventricles or something. So interesting. So when Dogen's commenting on these, he's using Butsu, Soku, Zei, Shin. Somewhat randomly. I don't know why he chose that order. But in the, in the essay, it's like each one of those characters is the beginning of, um, of a line of commentary. So, so first we get Buddha. Buddha's 100 blades of grass have been taken up. They've been made to disappear. I hear that 100 blades of grass is kind of like the 10,000 things, like all the myriad phenomena. 100 blades of grass are taken up by Buddha and they disappear. Kind of like how we've been talking about. 100 blades of grass appear in Buddha, in the Buddha 
awareness, and then they cease. And they go to awareness. And, uh, however, this cannot be explained as a 16-foot golden body, idea, which would maybe uh, could appear as a, this idealized image of Buddha as the golden 16-foot body. Um, it's more just like blazing glass. Another story where you plant the plant and oh, yeah, 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 right. a grass and it becomes a Oh, there you go, there you go. No, that's totally it. Yeah. That's totally it. You can see. What is it? What? Uh, the story is like um, the Buddha is walking along with the congregation and, and says, This is a good place to build a sanctuary. And Indra, the, the lord of the gods, picks up a blade of grass and plants it in the ground and says, The sanctuary is built. Buddha smiles. So totally. Dogen's, this is a great example of what Dogen often does. Is he's, he's just like kind of riffing off all these Zen koan stories. And, and I, I missed that one too. You mentioned it. Yeah, they're connected. So um, Buddha's hundred blades of grass have been taken up and disappeared. But we don't say that this is the 16th golden body of Buddha. I think the commentary the koan, right, says the 16-foot golden body leads him by the hand into the dust. Oh. Is that how it goes? It's the, it's the comment on the blade of grass koan. Mm. Or so. is he just saying that this is a sort of, I'm, I'm, use, I'm kind of referring to that story, but I'm using this blade of grass in a different way, so it's, it doesn't become the 16 Yeah, or it's, it doesn't need to be... Um, so awesome and dramatic. Another way to hear the um, the sixteen foot golden body. It's just all ordinary activity. Remember, this is all coming out Buddha. So Buddha, Buddha is like a sixteen foot golden body. Like, no, Buddha is just blades of grass. And that's, that that is kind of like that. A good place to build a sanctuary. Like let's build it out of a giant stupa of gold. Like no. Just put a blade of grass and that builds the sanctuary. It doesn't have to be so grandiose. In Zen, Buddha is, is everything. Uh, this, Soku, is the fundamental point which does not wait for actualization. So this is the fundamental point here is koan, and actualization is genjo. Dogen likes to, of course, this is an essay, Gendo Cohen, that came a little before this essay. But all through the Shobo Genzo, Dogen brings up these terms, Genjo and Cohen, weaves them together in different ways, sort of one of his trademark phrases. So in this case, it's, we're talking about this. Soku, this very. This very, like, you know, talking about the particular, just this is the fundamental point of the reality itself, which is the name of koan in this case, which does not wait for genjo, does not wait to be actualized. It's always actualized. This. It does not avoid being, being decomposed. It does not avoid destruction. In, in, 
itself, which is Zen, mind itself is Buddha. In itself, there are three realms. There's no walking away using these three realms of sentient beings. So uh, we could hear this fundamental point that doesn't wait for actualization. This reality doesn't avoid being destroyed. It doesn't avoid impermanence, you could even say. In itself, there are these three realms of impermanent sentient beings, and there's no walking away from them. I think this is a poetic way of saying that the ultimate is not some fixed, um, immutable essence. It's, all, it's the flux of everything happening. But maybe also that it's not like uh, it's sort of built in to be forgotten and remembered or actualized and not actualized. That it's the, the, the line from Dogen you cannot hinder enlightenment. Which is like it doesn't wait to be actualized. Right. Or, or doesn't mind being decomposed. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, it can't be hindered. This is the fundamental point which doesn't wait for actualization and it doesn't avoid being decomposed because nothing's really lost. In itself, there are three realms. There's no walking away, there's no leaving the three realms of samsara. You don't need to leave anything behind. Itself is not merely mind only. And as we're going to hear later, that is, mind is everything. So it's itself is not merely mind only. You could say it's everything. The mind is a wall, for example. It's not merely mind only, it's also a wall. It's not stained by muddy water, it's not created, not made. Mind is a wall. Bodhidharma sometimes talk like that. Make your mind like a wall. Mind is a wall and a pebble and a blade of grass. It's not stained by this mind. It's not merely mind only. It's also a wall. But the walls that are mind are not stained or um, defiled by muddy water. And this mind is not created or constructed or made. Study thoroughly. Mind itself is Buddha. Mind is Buddha itself. Buddha is itself the mind. Mind is itself is. Buddha is itself is. So then he just takes the four characters and rearranges them. I think mathematically you could rearrange them in 16 different ways, right? Couldn't you, if you take four different things and all the combinations? 24. 24. Cool. <laughs> so he chose four out of those. I'm not sure exactly if he used some math to figure out how, or if he just, the ways that sounded nice to him. So, study thoroughly. 
Mind itself is Buddha, Soku Shinze Butsu. Mind is Buddha itself, Shin Soku Butsu Zei. Or maybe another way to say it is, Mind as Buddha is this. So these are all like meditation practice instructions you could try that out. The next one is, Butsu Soku Zei Shin. Buddha is itself mind. And the next one is Soku Shin Butsu Zei. Actually, this translation is a, is a little off because each one has four characters. The next line is actually Mind Buddha is itself is. And then the next line is Buddha Mind is itself is. Soku Shin Butsu Zei and Zei Butsu Shin Soku. So, you know, we could spend all day just talking about those different perspectives, but I think he's just saying, let's be flexible with, um, with this, this phrase and turn it in all different ways. This is Dogen's kind of Vipassana instructions. Study this thoroughly. Sankyu, study thoroughly. Dogen, that's another phrase Dogen likes a lot. It means, like, exa- thoroughly examine this, which is hard, like at this point, she's carrying it so much, this mind is Buddha, but Dogen's kind of, let's keep it fresh, always, and look at it, turn each, each word of the, of this phrase, um, freshly. By studying thoroughly in this way, and taking up mind itself as Buddha, you authentically transmit it to mind itself as Buddha. It has been authentically transmitted until today. So you take our mind itself as Buddha, and you authentically transmit it not to a person, but to mind itself as Buddha. An inconceivable non-duality. Critiques were uh, sometimes kind of subtle. And we can hear, like, they keep talking this way, mind itself is Buddha. Like, they, uh, um, there's various pitfalls. In a way, the whole the essay is a lot, at least half the essay is just about the pitfalls, the common pitfalls that people were falling into 
in in all of China around this kind of this phrase and this kind of teaching. And now that we don't have to worry about these pitfalls, now we can just celebrate it. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you.